Welcome, everyone. Uh, it's great to be preaching today, and, and welcome to those joining us online. Um, and also, just for those maybe who joined us for the first time last week over Easter, just um, we want to welcome you, hope you find home with us, and we'd love to help you just uh, find community with us. So please uh, just say hi. We can help you take next steps and get stuck into community further with us. Um, but this week, we're carrying on in the book of Mark. We've been doing a series going through the book of Mark. That's what we'll probably be doing for the rest of the year, uh, breaking it up every now and then with other important little uh, mini-series or topics or special events in the year. And today, in many ways, is a perfect follow-on message from what we heard last week over Easter. Um, because when we're confronted with the gospel message, it does demand a response from us. Uh, our response isn't necessarily always faith. We know many people don't believe the gospel message, but it's impossible to hear the good news of Jesus and remain uh, neutral. Jesus demands a response in some way. And as we know that as Christians, the proclamation of the gospel is what has compelled us to put our trust in him and commit our lives to following him, but not everyone does respond in this way. And uh, C.S. Lewis has been famous, and we'll read, read a quote together just now, but he's been famous for having the framework of saying that Jesus is one of four things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or he is the Lord. And uh, when we look at those four things, we, he's either a liar, he made the whole thing up, and he was a big fraud, or he's a lunatic. He, he genuinely thought he was God, but he had some sort of psychological brokenness, and he was delusional. Or uh, he was a legend, never existed, but people made him up as a means to control the masses, which is obviously historically absurd. And, or he's the Lord. That's the fourth option. And we have to make our call. We have to make our decision. But hearing the gospel message, we cannot remain neutral. And this morning, my um, invitation to us, if we're an unbeliever, to, to again consider the claims of Jesus and consider our response to Jesus, because it's not enough to hear, it's our response that makes the difference. And if we are believers, that once again, we'd have a renewed uh, faith, a, a, a fresh worship, a renewed devotion uh, to our King. But Jesus does come with a claim of who he is. And uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, the quote will be up um, on the screens, it says this, or you can just listen to me if it isn't there. It says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let not us come with any patronizing nonsense about, this, about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So that word, those, that phrase, that sentence, you must make your choice, is, is an invitation to us to come and, and, and look at the evidence, look at the claims of the gospel. And we must respond in some way. 
And this morning, that's what we're going to be doing as we look in Mark chapter 3. Uh, you can turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 until verse 21. And we're going to be looking at four responses to Jesus and how uh, in some ways they represent us and how we might uh, respond more accurately to the person and work of Jesus. So I'll be reading Mark chapter 3 from verse 7. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible version. It says, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus then went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Bernerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. But when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. See, in this text today, we're looking at our responses to Jesus, and we're going to just be looking at the four groups in this text. We see the crowds, the demons, Jesus' family, and the disciples. And we'll just be looking at each one of those. Uh, just as a little hat tip, one of our advanced uh, family pastors in London, his, his name is Andrew Haslam. He's been incredibly uh, helpful in just how he's titled these sections, and I really couldn't improve much on it. So in, in case I get accused of plagiarism, Hat tip to you, Andrew. You are a legend and a scholar. But the first response to Jesus we're looking at here is the crowd. And it's in verse 7 to 10. It, it uses three times the, the phrase large crowd. A large crowd came. Uh, it says they came because they heard about everything he was doing. So this news of Jesus' ministry and, and the power involved and everything that was going on has spread. And people have come to see what is going on says that people were pressing against Jesus, that he might be crushed. So it says Jesus had to call and ask the disciples to fetch a boat. There was uh, so much up close and personal action to Jesus. People were um, pressing toward him and touching him and, and flocking to him. And one uh, thing we see throughout the Gospels is that the crowd is a very fickle thing. They're always there when the action's happening. They're always there at the, pre, at, at the sermons and uh, when healings are happening and crowds are coming to Jesus, but we hardly ever see them responding to Jesus in faith. 
And so the challenge of the crowd to us is this, that one of our responses to Jesus at times can be emotion without devotion. I'm a poet and I didn't even realize, right? Okay, the crowd suffers from emotion without devotion. There's lots of emotion in this crowd. They're desperate for healing. They're coming to him because he's something of a celebrity now and they've got this like crush thing going on. They've maybe heard of his amazing preaching gift and they're flocking to hear him preach. There's just such energy and momentum and emotion about this moment and about this man, Jesus. But soon the crowd desert him. Like sports fans who, who support their team uh, when things are going well, but as soon as the team starts losing, they get disowned. There, there's something in our hearts uh, about this uh, point. There's just lots of emotion sometimes around Jesus. A lot of people uh, would, would maybe define uh, what they think about Jesus, not so much about the truth of who he is, but how, how uh, they have felt towards him in the high, point, high emotional points of uh, their experience toward him. There's just something happening here where the crowds are always with Jesus at the healings, but we don't see any of them at the crucifixion or at his resurrection. The real issue with this is not that emotion is evil. Of course not. We love worshiping God passionately and, and enjoying who he is. But more that we're seeing a lot of emotion and hype, but no conviction of who Jesus is and certainly no devotion to him. Emotion without conviction is really bankrupt. It's empty. There's nothing there. And this can happen in a number of ways. I, I think I was just th thought of three as I was prepping. One is maybe we just get emotionally swept up in the moment. Um, it could be that um, people who, who have been invited to some sort of worship moment, and you know, music is powerful like that. It's, it, it gives us, it helps us feel the truth of who God is. Uh, and it's emotional, and it, that's a good thing. It's a gift to us. But so many people get swept up in the emotion of a worship moment and, and never consider the, the truth of who Jesus is and are never convicted about his saving power and about the fact that he is God who's come to forgive sin. And it doesn't necessarily always produce any repentance or devotion to him. So sometimes we get swept up in the moment. Sometimes it's also about getting swept up in the crowd. We sort of just go with the flow sometimes like the crowd, they've come to Jesus for what he can do for them. They've come for healing, it says. They've come for healing. And sometimes we come to Jesus to um, take care of our felt needs. And again, that's a beautiful thing. Our Lord is a tender king who loves to do that, but he's so much more than just a king who needs to give us um, what we want and, and heal our, our felt needs. There is something of a conviction that must come with who he is. We don't see that with the crowds, and so often we don't see that in our own lives. Conviction is just so essential, church, because the tough times will, tough times will come. Because the happy emotions won't always be there. But the trials will come, life will be hard, COVID-19 will tear apart everything you used to love about church. Maybe it's been a long time since you felt the, the deep, passion, uh, passionate worship for God. 
I remember last year when we hadn't had a chance, an opportunity for months to worship together. It was just so, it was a hard work to be um, disciplined in, in cultivating that passionate worship uh, in isolation. And it's a beautiful thing and gift to us that we get together and hear each other sing and lift our voices as we encourage each other in song. But it's more important even that we remember who the person of Jesus is. It's not so much about how we feel about him as it is what we believe about him. Are we convinced that Jesus really is the Son of God? And how is that producing devotion in our lives? That would be the first invitation, that our emotion would produce a conviction that would result in devotion. The second response to Jesus that we're seeing in the text is that of the demons. And I actually want to spend some time on this because this is really important and challenging for us. Uh, verse 11 and 12, uh, verse 11 and 12, it tells us that Jesus was healing people or with the people, with the crowds, and the crowds were crashing against him. And it says, verse 11, that whenever the clean, unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. This is the most accurate statement in the whole passage that the demons are seeing that this is the Son of God. And that shouldn't surprise us since they are spiritual beings. They see things properly. But what's crucial about the demons, and this is the central point, is that there is knowledge without repentance. And I'm not assuming for a moment that demons have any kind of opportunity to repent, but as I said, that this sort of represents us in many ways. It can represent some of us. There's lots of knowledge about who Jesus is that hasn't produced a repentance. Repentance is essential. It's possible to have an accurate intellectual understanding of who Jesus is without having a genuine faith. The demons knew exactly who Jesus was. Yet they're not saved and they don't know him and they don't have forgiveness. They can have a, a kind of faith that is purely intellectual and miss miss everything of the essence of what faith in Jesus really is. And again, just to nuance this, knowledge of who Jesus is is so crucial. Good theology should fuel worship for Jesus and does fuel worship for Jesus. But salvation and forgiveness is more than just knowing the facts. It's more about repenting and trusting in Christ. Jesus said this many times in his ministry. He used the phrase, repent and believe. That's how he defined it uh, in, in large part. If you look at the beginning of uh, Mark, if you're taking notes, in Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, it says this, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus is using that phrase, repent and believe. So what does it mean to repent and believe? A guy by the name of Bruce Ware, he helps us. He says this, Repentance involves seeing sin for the deceitful and deadly thing that it is, so that we turn from it. Belief in Christ involves seeing Christ for the gracious and powerful Savior that He is, so that we turn toward Him. These two acts go together in a person's salvation. Repentance and belief are like two sides of the same coin. You can't have one side 
without having the other side also. And so there's a turning from and a turning to. It's not just knowledge, but rather a conviction that produces a trust in Christ, a conviction of our sin that produces a trust in Christ. It's not just about intellectual understanding. We can have the best theology in the world. In fact, some of the professors and doctors of theology know way more than I'll ever know, more, know more than most of us would ever know about the intricacies of theological argument, but many of them don't know Christ and have never asked God for forgiveness, never repented of their sins, never trusted in the person and work of Jesus. And this might be good news for many of us, is that the converse is true as well. You don't have to understand very much to be Christ. You simply have to understand who he said he was, repent of our sin and trust in him. And of course, the encouragement is as we grow, we grow in theology as well. But it's not, we're not saved by our knowledge. We're saved by our trust in Christ to save. And correct application of knowledge in Christ is that it has to move us to repentance and belief in him. Third um, response to Jesus in this text is the family, Jesus' own family. In verse 20 and 21, it says this, that this was at the, the end of his time with the crowds. It says, Jesus went home, but the crowd gathered again at his house. They followed him home. They, they, they stalked him. Uh, so they were not even able to eat. Jesus' family couldn't even eat. The crowd had come. Verse 21 says, When his family heard this, they set out to restrain Jesus because they said he's out of his mind. They thought Jesus was a lunatic. This man is bonkers. Now, here's the thing. Jesus has obviously grown up with his family. They've known Jesus since birth. So why is it now that they're thinking he's a lunatic? Like surely they'd know by now that he's God. And here's the thing. It's not because Jesus was a sinful rebel. Right? My family know my sin all too well. If I ever claimed anything like this, they'd be able to call me out very quickly. It's not the case with Jesus. That's not what's happening here. I think why Jesus why they're thinking this way of Jesus is, is actually something else. I think it's because, in one sense, he was so ordinary. The Bible does tell us that Jesus was fully human. It just says that he was a sinless human and that he was God as well. But he was human in every way. He grew up like every other child. He cried at a baby. He grazed his knees as a toddler. He worked hard in the family business. He sweated. He had tummy bugs. You know, he had all the things we have. He was fully human. He wasn't a ghost. And so it may have appeared to his family that he was quite ordinary. But here's the thing. His family did come to believe. If you look at the books of, in the Bible, the books of, of James and Jude, those are some of Jesus' siblings. Those are his brothers. And they do come to believe that he is who he said he was. But at this point, they can't see it. They're like, this is Jesus. He's normal. I've grown up with this guy. Like, there's nothing special about him. So the challenge of the family here concerning Jesus, their response is familiarity without worship. 
I've got familiarity with the person of Jesus, but without worship at this stage. And so often that does represent us, doesn't it? We have familiarity without worship. Maybe two ways. I want to first talk to maybe those who aren't believers in Jesus yet or are just starting out the journey. Maybe you are familiar with the Christian message. We're lucky to grow up in a predominantly Christian culture, I think, still in South Africa, although it is changing. And I remember when I was in primary school, um, one of the things we'd do, I think it was on a Wednesday morning, like nine, just before first break, I remember, it's like drilled into my brain, we'd have hymn practice. Like this was an actual thing that we'd do. The whole school would go and we'd have a hymn practice with a little auntie on her piano and we'd sing hymns. And I could recite every word of every hymn. Like I could moderately keep a, a melody going and I knew all the words. But at that point in my life, I'd never considered the meaning of what I was singing. I was so familiar with the message of Jesus. I was so familiar with Christian culture and Christianity and things of a Christian nature, but it had no personal significance yet. There was no personal worship yet. Maybe this describes somewhere where you're at that you're so familiar with, the, with Jesus and the message of the gospel, haven't really considered its life-changing power yet. And you wouldn't maybe call yourself a worshiper, maybe a seeker, maybe not a worshiper. And I think this is also true for those of us who would call ourselves believers. Because the natural drift of our hearts is towards complacency and familiarity and away from worship. And it's sadly true that for most, for the most part, it's, it's, the, it's the Christians that have been uh, saved for many years that are perhaps at times the most grumpy in their faith. And those who are just newly, have, have newly experienced forgiveness that are the most passionate. And should really be the op- opposite. As we grow with Jesus, we grow in our uh, passionate worship of him. And I think a central element here that is a challenge to us is uh, how we take things for granted. And we we fail to recognize and fully appreciate just how incredible it is that we know Jesus. And again, just a personal story, part of my testimony, I grew up in a Christian family and we went to church most Sundays and we, we did this, all the Christian things, and it was genuine. My family loves the Lord, but in those early years of my life, I was not saved, and I did not know Him. And it was all just a Christian culture to me. I knew how to pray. If I was asked to pray, I could say a few words. I could use the right terminology. I could craft uh, things here and there. If I had to say a speech, I could quote a Bible verse. But it was just intellectual. It was just uh, an over-familiarity with, with, the, with the culture of who Jesus was, not a personal relationship with, with Jesus personally. At that stage, I was so familiar with the message and person of Jesus, I just, I just didn't worship him yet. That came later in my teens when I got saved. And perhaps that's the shift Jesus is calling us to. 
is to, is to shift us from uh, our faith being more of a cultural practice to being a personal conviction that leads to worship. Maybe for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, is that renewal of passionate worship, and that, a, a warning against complacency. Uh, a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton, he's an old English writer and, and theologian and, and so on. He says this, we, we are perishing for lack of wonder, not lack of wonders. We're perishing for lack of wonder, not lack of wonders. It's, it's not that there aren't enough things, amazing things that Jesus has done. It's, it's, it's not the, the quantity of amazing things. It's our response to them. We're, we're too prone to fall back into familiarity and away from worship. And the invitation to us, even again this morning, is to come back to appreciate the work of Easter, the message of Easter, the person of Jesus in his death and resurrection on our behalf for our sin in our place, for our salvation. That adoration and worship would increase and overflow into joy. And so the fourth thing we're seeing here, and the fourth response to Jesus is the response of the disciples. And this is the primary encouragement to us in this text. It's, it's verse 13 to verse 19, and we see that Jesus goes up to the mountain and he calls uh, people to come follow him, and he calls uh, these guys his apostles. And now, and now look, I want to just start off by talking about the call to Christ, because for these guys, it was literal. Right, Jesus went up the mountain and they literally got called to him. But it's spiritually true for us today as well, that we get called into relationship with Jesus. You look at verse 14, it says that Jesus called them to be with him. It says this, there's, there's this withness with Jesus, there's this presence with Jesus, that we get called to him into a lifelong um, daily relationship where we get to um, come into the presence of God as we are in relationship with him. And there's a wholeheartedness in this. The disciples don't make any conditions. They don't make any uh, sort of requests or draw any lines in the sand. They, they are, they're wholeheartedly in. So the distinctive mark here and challenge for us this morning is a faith without reserve. The disciples have faith without reserve. There's no reserve. They're holding nothing back. They're not drawing a line in the stand and making a limit of what Jesus can ask of them, they're all in. They're giving them their whole selves to the person and mission of Jesus. And there's, there's two ways that I just want to quickly unpack. There's two ways to think about faith in Jesus. Uh, the one way is that I feel a conviction in my heart. I invite Right? I invite Jesus to come live in my heart, and that's where he'll stay because he won't affect my life. I'll just sort of keep him in some hidden compartment, and I'll summon him. I'll summon Jesus wherever he needs help. Now, again, Jesus loves to help us. I want that to be clear, but I want to just challenge us that that is a faulty and insufficient and ineffective and really unbiblical view of what happens when we get saved. It's the exact opposite. We feel convicted because Jesus is calling us to himself. He comes to live in us, and we come to live in him. 
He owns our lives as our Lord, so he gets to call the shots of what we do. And we surrender to him as our king in a lifelong joyful obedience to the king of our lives. And it's those two different kinds of Christianity. Is Jesus more of our butler who we boss around and ask for help? And as I said, I want to nuance that. He loves to help us. He loves to call on the Lord. You know, the the Psalms, the scriptures are clear about how close God is to those who call on him. But the the priority is more that Christ has called us himself. It's, It's not so much about Jesus answering our call or, or to serve us, it's more about uh, us answering his call to serve him. And so the question for some of us today might be, what areas of our life or are the areas of our life that are, that are off limits for Jesus? Like some areas he's not allowed to interfere with. Jesus, this is trespassing. I'm drawing the line here. You get to have that much of my life, but this is restricted access. It's off limits. That's not just an insufficient and, and, and dysfunction of your salvation. It's also a, a sure way to kill your joy in him and frustrate you. It will frustrate you. The, it's, it's a weird thing the way this works is that you're only going to experience the full joy of the Lord when you're all in. And that's what we see of the disciples here. There is faith without reserve. There's no conditions. There's no limits. There's no uh, restricted access. Jesus gets to have all of them. And they are all in for Jesus. And I just want to end with this. Because here's the encouragement to us. This can sound like a burden. This can sound like this is heavy and, and weighty and just a lot of... Um, accountability and just hardness in this. But I can promise you this, that I don't know what the disciples were feeling in this moment, but I am convinced of this, that they were not overwhelmed and burdened. They were not overwhelmed and burdened by how much of Jesus was asking of them. They were more overwhelmed and glad that they were even chosen. And that is, the, that is the invitation for us this morning, just to recognize. You know, Jesus didn't have to choose them. There's nothing in these guys that warranted choosing. They, they, didn't, they weren't qualified. They had no qualifications. In fact, most of them, due to their past and history, were like what other people would call the worst of the worst, the, the people Jesus should definitely not pick. And it's almost like Jesus goes ahead and picks, picks for example, that Matthew, the tax collector, just the guy who's most hated by everyone, just to, this is what was preached a few weeks ago, just to remind us and to tell us that there is no one off limits for him. There is no one too far gone. We can never go too far that Jesus cannot save us and win us to himself. That's good news. They had no qualifications. They had no influence. There was nothing in them that deserved grace or mercy. It's just because Jesus is kind. And gracious. And I'm so convinced that in their hearts they were just mind blown that they were even chosen and part of the team. And I just want to end with this quote here by John Newton. He's a theologian and abolitionist and so on in the past. And he said this If I reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. 
First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. And that's the good news of Jesus. He has called us to himself. And we get the joy of following him in daily relationship. I'm just convinced again this this fresh awe of our salvation is so essential to the Christian message and so essential to what God wants to remind us of even this morning, that as it fuels again our devotion to him and our worship of him and our repentance to him, that he would enable us and gift us by his spirit to again just like consider the weight that we actually are forgiven, that we actually are his children. If that is true of you, I pray that God would enable us in this moment just to again take hold and appreciate the wonder of the gospel afresh. Maybe if you're just considering Jesus, that that would be a first experience of you today. As you, as you say yes, you repent of sin and trust in Christ to save. That that would truly be something that just fuels us and give us renewed um, forgiveness, renewed uh, affection for Christ and just a renewed devotion and worship uh, to him. So we're going to have communion now. Quint's going to lead us in communion. We'll we'll respond in a song, but why don't you just join me in in prayer as we just respond to Jesus in this moment. Yeah, Christ, we're just so thankful again for your kindness to us in the gospel. That you have I come to seek and save us who were lost, but that you have come, left heaven to come and seek us out and find us. And we want to say thank you. And we want to say that you are right. Uh, in line with the Easter message, our sin is the problem. You are the Savior. And we repent and we believe in you afresh this morning. I pray, God, that you'd help us just take hold of Uh, some of what you're saying to us from this text uh, and help us respond to you fully and that we would uh, again just bow our lives at your feet as we sang earlier and believe and build our lives on you. Uh, Thank you, God, that this uh, may at times feel like a burden, but it really is the ultimate path to joy and fullness and satisfaction in this life. And we want to just say together that we are yours, Father. Please take our lives. Do with it as you will. We surrender to you. We pray that you would give us deepening faith um, wherever we are in our journey and help us trust and appreciate more fully the work of Jesus and by your Spirit apply to us again in fresh ways the joy of your salvation.